Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. Um, and we pray that uh, in this moment, that our worship would not feel like weariness to us, but that it would feel like a joy, that it would be restorative, that you would be feeding us in the preaching of your word, in the sacraments of the body and blood of your son. We pray that you'd prepare us for that. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this Sunday, if you have not noticed, is the first Sunday of Advent, the beginning of the Christian year that traces the life of Christ and organizes time around him. Interestingly, the church calendar, calendar does not begin with the birth of Christ, but before it, with a season of waiting for his entrance into the world. Advent, therefore, is a season of waiting. And due to where we are positioned historically, we are waiting for Christ to come a second time, to judge the world with equity and righteousness, and to fulfill the work of making all things new that the church is currently engaged in at present. We are waiting for Christ to come again, just as the saints long ago waited for him to come the first time. And in order to learn how to wait well during Advent, we typically return to the Old Testament to learn from those saints of old. This year, we're going to spend Advent in the prophecy of Malachi, which the Jews refer to as the, the seal of the prophets and the last among them. The prophecy of Malachi was, is described in this way because as one scholar points out, it was considered the, the transition link between the two dispensations, that is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Malachi stands in the gap. He was the last of the prophets. He spoke and his words just hung there. The prophecy of Malachi, uh, after the prophecy of Malachi, there was a, a great silence until a Jewish tax collector named Matthew wrote an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Malachi, therefore, got the last word in for the prophets. And throughout scripture, we have other last words of Jacob, of Moses, of Joshua, of David, of Paul, even of Jesus. And they're all significant because they contain those things that are of the utmost importance to these important figures. One scholar points out, though, that the significance of Malachi being the last word of the prophets is that Malachi contains the last words of not a single individual, but of a whole generation, a generation of prophets through whom God had revealed himself to his people in a unique way. Through Malachi, therefore, we receive this, this summative and representative lesson on behalf of the prophets about how to wait well for Jesus. The goal of this, this prophecy was to encourage active perseverance in hope through words of comfort and confrontation when it was difficult to hope and much easier to wander. One scholar describes the character of Malachi's prophecy when he writes that Malachi's teaching, both negative and positive, strikes at the heart of nominal, easygoing Christianity just as it did at that of Judaism. Malachi is telling us that 
If we're not intentionally ordering our lives in pursuit of God, then we're quietly moving away from him, perhaps unwittingly so, and instead are being formed by the opinions of a godless culture. He wrote for a people long ago, and yet his words still speak to us today. The people to whom Malachi was most likely originally writing were certainly familiar with the disillusionment and discouragement, exhaustion and defeat that defines the human experience in this world as we now know and experience it. One scholar describes the circumstances of the people to whom Malachi most likely wrote. He writes, in the mid-5th century BC, Judah was not necessarily a satisfactory place to live. The first waves of captives had returned from Babylon in 538 BC to a small territory with a population numbering around 150,000. Almost immediately, the returned exiles encountered well-organized opposition to their plans to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem from the people of the surrounding territory. After 22 years, the Jews had succeeded in rebuilding the temple, but the sight of it made the people who remembered the first temple weep at the sight of this lamentable substitute. Jerusalem itself, however, lay in ruins, its walls broken, inhabited only here and there by squatters. The great hopes of the late 6th century were only memories. In this condition, God's people felt abandoned, wearied with the weight of their unfulfilled hopes, and consequently they wavered in their faithfulness to God. Their worship was compulsory, and therefore it was careless and shallow. They had become ungrateful, having lost sight of those good things they actually did possess, which had become hidden in the shadow of, this enorm- of these enormous high hopes left unfulfilled. And it was into this situation that God spoke. Malachi is divided into several spirited conversations between God and his people. And the first of those conversations begin when God declares his love for his people in verse 2. And his people demand proof in response. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? And without going any further than that, we already have something incredibly significant to say about God. And that is that it's his very nature to pursue his children when they wander from him. Notice that it's God who begins this conversation. It's clearly not his people who prove themselves in no mood to talk about God's love. Consumed by their own misfortune and misery, they don't want to hear any talk of a loving God. And it's precisely when they are in such a state that God strikes up a conversation with them. I've always loved you, God starts. He is pursuing his people who would otherwise never come around to him. They'd hide and pout and stew in their bitterness. But God's love is so great that he's, he's willing to overlook all of that and pursue reconciliation with us. It's his nature to do so. If this were the only example of God pursuing his children as they ran from him, then we might not be justified in making claims about his nature. But according to the Bible, God has been doing this literally from the beginning. The first human beings sinned. They disobeyed God. They didn't have to. They chose to because they, they doubted that God truly loved them and that he had provided for them everything they needed or could handle as finite creatures. 
And they rebelled against God, therefore, and through their sin, they, they dragged God's good and perfect creation into the state that we experience it today, a state of disarray and decay and division. But even then, at that first sin, while our representatives were hiding behind bushes, hastily wrapped in leaves torn from otherwise perfect trees, even then God pursued his children. He entered the garden and he asked one of the most sorrowful questions ever spoken by God. Where are you? Where are you? Where were we? We were hiding from God in our fear and shame, in our regret, in our self-pity. That's how we have behaved since the beginning. It's in our very nature to do so, but not God's. God's nature is grace and love for his children. It's in his nature to pursue us, to rescue us, and to reconcile us back to himself. And at the end of this Advent season, we will celebrate God's greatest act of rescue and reconciliation. For over 2,000 years ago, the Son of God took on flesh and literally came to us. The Apostle Paul says he did it while we were yet enemies. He came to us in order to reconcile us back to God through his blood. Someone had to pay for our rebellion and it had to be a human being, but this human being had to be perfect and we were all miserable offenders trying to make our way in this world without God. So this human being would have to be like a God if the sacrifice were to be sufficient and acceptable. And so God, not someone like a God, but God himself came once again to us, this time as a human being ready to die for our reconciliation. See how he has always loved you? It's in his nature to pursue you. He came to us in the humility of our humanity and he suffered in the flesh for us. And here we are pouting because we're uncomfortable and our dreams of greatness have turned out to be delusions of vanity. God's come to us. He's shown us how he's always loved us. And our reply is, sure, but what have you done for me lately? God tells us he loves us. We demand proof. <laughs> but God, being gracious as he is, actually answers our demand, our bold demand for proof by giving us evidence of his love. Right? He cites the case of Jacob and Esau to demonstrate that he loves us simply because he's chosen to love us and not because we've met some standard of his or have done anything particularly attractive to him. Jacob and Esau were brothers, right? They came from the same home. They were born at the same time. They possessed the same genetic material, yet I've loved Jacob and Esau I hated. Why? Simply because he's decided that's what he would do. Both were deserving of his hatred, but he, he chose to make his love known in his choice of Jacob. He is, as the creator, free to act as he wants. The Apostle Paul in Romans 9 makes it even more clear that God's choice was free from all external influences. In Romans 9, Paul points out that God made his choice before Jacob or Esau had done anything either good or bad. It was not based on their behavior, but on the choice of God alone. His love, therefore, has this, this circular reasoning to it. He loves us because he loves us. He loves us because he loves us, not because of anything in us. It's an incredibly freeing love 
and an incredibly humbling one as well. It's humbling because if he loves us simply because he loves us, then we cannot point to anything in ourselves as to why we believe and our neighbor does not. You can't. It eliminates all ground for boasting, for looking down on those who don't believe. We can point to nothing in ourselves. And it's incredibly freeing because we don't have to. We don't have to perform to make God love us. He loves us simply because he loves us. In the midst of our waiting in this world for Christ to come again, in the midst of our feelings of of disappointment, disillusionment, and despair, God comes to us and he reminds us of his love and of the basis for that love. He points us to Christ and he tells us that he loves us regardless of the fact that no one else apparently feels the same way about us. He loves us even if we aren't beautiful in the world's eyes. He loves us even if we're not experienced or talented or intelligent enough for the world. He loves us even though we have wronged him. And, he want, and what he wants in return is gratitude and praise. Not as an attempt to make ourselves more attractive to him, right? but as a, a joyful response to the fact that he loved us precisely when we were unattractive doesn't get much more unattractive than dead, which is what we were. We were spiritually dead in our sin when God made us alive through the death of Jesus. And in response, he wants you to offer yourself as a sacrifice, not in the literal sense, but in the living sense. Paul writes in Romans 12, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. During Malachi's time, the the people offered sacrifices of animals and and produce like grain and oil. But in their their partial participation in the faith, their sacrifices had become pathetic and despicable. They were offering blind animals, animals that were lame, animals that were wounded. Give that to your governor. See what he says. God tells his people in verse 8. Obviously, he was less than pleased with the sacrifices being offered to him. And so he tries another approach. You see, always God leads with love. Love that pursues and overlooks wrongs and is based on nothing but his free choice. He wants his love to be the motivation for our response of gratitude and praise. But if you will not respond to his love by making personal and costly sacrifices to follow him, then he'll begin to demand it of you. It is, he reminds us, his right to be worshipped. This is the line of reasoning he resorts to in verse 6. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? See, he's reminding us of his position as our father, our master, and in verse 14, our great king. Because apparently coming to us in love communicates to us a a weakness that we can ignore or patronizingly acknowledge by coming to church on occasion, but never pray through the day or encounter him through the reading of Holy Scripture. If his love is insufficient, if his love is insufficient motivation, then then give him your life and obedience on account of what is due to a person in his position. Verse 11 is 
often written on greeting cards or posted on placards in homes as, a, as this kind of hopeful and victorious message, right? From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations. This is, however, not a hopeful message. It's a demand. My name will be great among the nations. And if you will not sacrifice yourselves to me on account of my love, then do it because it's what I deserve. It's what's due to me. And don't think I'll be pleased with your nominal, easygoing Christianity either, right? Try giving that to your employer and see what they say. No, I want all of you all the time. I I want what you do in and with your bodies to be an act of praise. I want you to view only those things that will nourish your soul. I want your thoughts and your speech to honor me, not only in content, but in tone. I want you to arrange your schedule so that I'm on your calendar every day. I want your pace of life to be slow enough that you can hear me when I speak to you. I want you to take practical steps to keep yourselves from temptation and not just ask me to do it for you. I want you to put down your phones, allow yourselves to be manipulated no longer, and instead discipline yourself in virtue. I want you to confess and forgive. I want you to love like me. And I want most of all for my love to be enough for you. He has shown you how much he has loved you. Let that be enough. Look here. He has given himself for you. His body and blood, broken, poured out for you. He has given himself for you. Will you do the same for him? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.